Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Uh, This past few weeks, I've enjoyed summer travels, and today I'd like to give you a report entitled, What I Learned on My Summer Vacation. Uh, That seems to be the cliche essay that all uh, teachers assign their elementary school students on the first day of school, so why not? Actually, my summer travels were in some ways unexpected and quite informative. And so I want to talk about two different trips I was able to take this summer. But more than just give you a travel log, I want to talk about uh, how they impacted me in relationship to uh, the work that I do as a seminary president, but even more importantly than that, uh, the life I'm living as a Christian man. The trips this summer really impacted me in the areas of understanding the power of the gospel, uh, the nature of the church, and really reinvigorated in me uh, a commitment to building churches with the right kind of leaders who have the right kind of focus that can make a genuine difference in our communities. So let me tell you a little bit about the trips and then uh, more from there into what I learned and why I think it might be important to you and hopefully inspirational to you and certainly encouraging to you as you lead in ministry today. The first trip that we took this summer was to India. Uh, Our seminary sponsors a trip every summer that's entitled Beyond Teams, and the Beyond Teams go uh, in cooperation and in partnership with our missions program uh, to various places in the world to share the gospel, to learn about missions, to experience the life of missionaries, all of that. Now, the trip has, uh, of course, two, two purposes. One is to actually do the work of missions. We share the gospel, help with church planting and other aspects of missionary service. And then secondarily, uh, the trip has the the purpose of helping students to uh, field test, if you will, what it looks like to be a missionary and to meet missionaries in the field and find out how they live, what they do, uh, how their families uh, function, all those kinds of things. So over the past few summers, because of the relocation of the seminary and just all the demands that came with that, I've had to curtail some of my summer travel, and I haven't been able to participate in this program like I did a number of years ago. But this summer I was able to re-engage, and I was able to go with the team to India. Uh, While we were in India, we really did uh, three things. First, uh, we did evangelism training for the team, and then we did street evangelism, where we simply went into the streets of Delhi and encountered people and talked with them about their relationship with God and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And then secondarily, uh, after we'd done that for a few days, we broke up into smaller teams, and uh, one-third of our team went to support a a missionary family that's working in India. And in this case, all three of the missionary families where we sent teams were Gateway graduates. And so uh, that gave us a really close personal connection with these missionaries and helped us to have kind of a family feel about the trip in, in that regard. And then the third thing was really something that I did and uh, more than the team did, and that is um, I went to a city uh, and led a pastor's training event. And it turned out to be more of a leadership training event because past, the pastors brought various people from their churches who were involved in ministry leadership, and I was able to teach them using the model of the church in Antioch. I was able to teach them about uh, church life, ecclesiology, church ministry function, and all aspects of what it means to be pastor or leader in that context. It was an invigorating uh, mission trip. I really enjoyed the street evangelism. 
uh, it was uh, invigorating to go on the street and ask people or, or and have people ask you uh, what are you doing here I mean it was obvious we were uh, we were foreigners uh, pretty quickly they could discern we were Americans after talking with us for a few seconds and they would ask us well why are you here and I would say something like this well I'm a professor and I have a team of graduate students here in your country, and we're studying, uh, we're talking with people about their religious beliefs and how those impact their lives. Uh, and they were like, oh, well, that's great. And so they would easily start telling you about their, uh, their Hinduism and their gods and their household idols and their uh, temples, shrines, etc. And then uh, I would have the opportunity to say, well, that's very interesting. Uh, I follow a man named Jesus, or I worship a man named Jesus. Have you heard of him? What was really invigorating to me was when people would look back at me and answer in response to that question with, an inquisical, with a quizzical look on their face and say, no, I, I've never heard of him. Now, this wasn't in some uh, backwards jungle environment with a primitive people. This was in Delhi, India, where everyone had an iPhone and where uh, access to media is prevalent. And yet, when I said the name of Jesus, people would respond by saying, no, I, I've never heard of him. So our students had this experience over and over and over and were able to share the gospel in that context. So that was my first trip. The second trip turned out to be an unexpected one, and it came about in kind of a humorous way. Uh, my son, my oldest son, works for the United States uh, government. He's with the State Department, and he was in Europe working for the past couple of years. Your government provides him a place to live for free in Brussels, Belgium. Thank you very much for your tax dollars at work. And so last summer, my wife and I went over and stayed with him for a week or so. Uh, free place to stay in Europe. How can you beat that? So we went over, stayed with him, toured a little bit in the area, really had a great relaxing vacation. So this summer, we were planning to do it again. Now, he was scheduled to return back to the United States uh, in this August, and so we planned our trip to go over there in early July so we could, uh, once again, have the free lodging in Europe and the opportunity to tour some sites. Well, you know what happened. Uh, in May, he called and said, Dad, my plans have been changed. Uh, I'm coming home. My assignment's been uh, updated, and my timetable's been changed, and so I won't be here when you come, and you won't have a place to stay. So that left us in a quandary. Do we cancel the tickets, lose the money? Do we try to change the tickets and go somewhere else? Uh, both of those turned out to be pretty expensive options. And so the third option was, let's just go ahead and use the tickets and go ahead and go to Europe and see what happens. And so I went home and talked it over with Ann. And then I said, uh, or we agreed that this third option was the best. And then I said, Ann, if you could go anywhere you want to go in Europe, where would you like to go? And without blinking an eye, she says, Switzerland. And that really shocked me. I said, what, Switzerland? She goes, yep, Switzerland. I said, well, Ann, that strikes me as interesting. I've known you for 40 years, been married for 39. Don't believe I've ever heard the word Switzerland come out of your mouth. How? And yet, when I ask you where you want to go, without even blinking an eye, you just immediately have it on the tip of your tongue. Where did that come from? How, why have I never heard this before? And she smiled and said, well, it never came up before. But I've always wanted to go to Switzerland. I said, well, look at me. Okay, another surprising revelation from my wife after 40 years. Uh, that's another podcast, but uh, if you're a guy listening to this and you're married, isn't it amazing that you simply never can fully know 
the uh, mysteries of the woman that God has brought into your life. Wow. Anyway, another podcast. Back to this one. So I uh, said to Anne, great, we'll go to Switzerland. So off we go. Now, I'm thinking she wants to go to Switzerland to see the Alps and see the cho- eat the chocolate and all of that. And that's why she wanted to go. But then after we started planning the trip, I realized that there were some pretty significant historical sites in Switzerland that I also wanted to see. In fact, I've always wanted to see. So we wound up going uh, to Switzerland to see, first of all, in Zurich, uh, the home of and the church where Ulrich Zwingli did his early ministry. Now, that name may not be as familiar as some others to you from church history, but really there were three men that were instrumental in the Protestant Reformation. Of course, Martin Luther, we all know him, and John Calvin, we've almost all heard of him. But there was a third guy named Ulrich Zwingli who was also extremely significant and very influential in his day. And so I was able to go to uh, see his house, and then I was able to go uh, into the church where he preached and uh, to just experience the history of the impact that he made as one of the really significant leaders of the Reformation. And then, of course, we went, on, we went down to Geneva a few days later, and we were able to go to Calvin's church. And when I say go to Calvin's church, I mean I was able to stand in the place where Calvin stood to preach, uh, you know, those 500 years ago. Um, it was a phenomenal moment for me to be able to go there and to see what happened and to, to experience the history of it. They actually have a museum that's built next to the church. Uh, I was able to tour that. They don't allow photographs, which was sad because there's so many things in the museum that are uh, really of historical consequence about the Reformation. Uh, early documents, uh, Bibles, pamphlets, messages, things that really helped shape the history of the world. And so getting able to see that and, and soak up all that was so significant for me. Now, from those two trips, I, uh, or excuse me, those two sites, Zurich and Geneva, and studying uh, Zwingli and Calvin and going to the places where they did their early ministry, I was once again overwhelmed by the power of the gospel. You know, it's hard to really put into context what happened in the Reformation. I mean, we know the facts, but it's just hard to really imagine it. The, the Catholic Church was so pervasive. They had control of Christianity uh, and it had it, it was a it was a, a an oppressive kind of control that the church exercised over people. Remember that the printing press had had just been invented, and that's one of the things that spurred the Reformation along. But people didn't have access to the Bible; they only heard what they heard from the Bible as an edited version of what was taught to them in the churches. And the Catholic Church was was so corrupt at the time, talking about selling indulgences and and letting people buy their way into and out of purgatory and into and out of heaven and all of that kind of thing. And, and all of that corruption and all of that difficulty and all that bad theology was all what had really captured and was prevalent uh, in, the, in Christianity at the time. And then, of course, uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli came along and said that the just shall live by faith, uh, the gospel is accessed by faith, that salvation depends entirely on God's grace, that this is given to us as a free gift of salvation. This was radical information, and it was a radical departure from what the people were experiencing in their era. And it was an attempt by these men to reform the church, hence the name Reformation, but quickly became a movement that really had to take place separate from the Catholic Church. And so that generated the uh, Protestant movement, which of course led to the Radical Reformation, which of course produced movements like Baptists, which of course we're a part of today. But all of that reminded me of the power of the gospel, that there is something liberating about preaching that Jesus Christ died, 
was buried and was resurrected for our sin, and that because of that, we can place faith in him, and by his grace, we can receive his gift of salvation. I, I was once again humbled, awed, inspired, motivated, encouraged. You pick your word. It all happened to me this summer about the power of the gospel. And as a part of that, I was also impressed once again by the courage of the Reformers. Uh, these men stepped into the breach on our behalf and were the first ones to say uh, that what was being taught by the church wasn't true, wasn't right, wasn't complete, and that they needed to, that we all needed to recapture the biblical message of salvation. And when I think of the courage that was required for these men to do this, and remember, they did this in relative isolation. They were lived hundreds of miles apart. They didn't have instantaneous access or communication. Uh, they were operating really on their own, uh, standing up to formidable odds around them. And only as they were able to link up by letters and rare visits were they able to find any kind of encouragement from like-minded people in this movement. And so I was impressed not only by the power of the gospel, but by the courage of the reformers. And then one other thing that was very clear was the importance of the printing press and the importance of the printing word and of making the gospel um, available to everyone by that means. One thing I didn't realize uh, until I went through the Museum of the Reformation uh, there in Geneva is that a lot of John Calvin's materials were being printed contemporaneously with when they were being written or spoken. In other words, people were copying down uh, in stenographic fashion his sermons and very quickly typesetting them and getting them into print. Uh, I, I knew he had a, an influence that carried on after his lifetime through his printed material, but I was not aware of how much that impact uh, carried on during his lifetime. And so uh, it reminded me once again of the importance of being able to communicate through the printed word and through printed information and through information being available. And frankly, the printing press was the reforma or was the uh, uh, the revolutionary invention that that helped change the world uh, and made the Reformation possible. But now, in our lifetime, we've seen the advent of the internet, which is uh, kind of the next big, I think, communication breakthrough that's come to us that really has changed everything about how information is disseminated. And so, these kinds of things uh, really were a part of what I learned, uh, you know, there in Switzerland. Now. I made a little side trip, though, that I want to add to the itinerary because my wife also wanted to go to Amsterdam to, for one specific purpose. She wanted to go there to tour the Anne Frank Museum, uh, the Diary of Anne Frank, the very famous book that was written by that young girl who was uh, held in captive, held uh, in uh, uh, secrecy for almost two years and then was taken away and, of course, died in a concentration camp. But uh, we wanted to side trip there. So we made a little side trip there uh, as a part of the journey over to Switzerland. And my wife wanted to see the, the Anne Frank Museum, and I did too. But there were some other things in Amsterdam, so we stayed a couple of days and saw some other sites. And one of the things I wanted to see in Amsterdam was a building called the Old Church. Now, it's called the Old Church because it's the oldest building in Amsterdam. Parts of it were first constructed in 1290, I believe. And so this building has been there now for, gosh, uh, what, these, uh, these 700 years, something like that, uh, almost. And, <clears throat> and it's still standing. It's now a museum and has a lot of historical information, et cetera, et cetera. But what made the old church so striking was, first of all, of course, it's been there a long time. It's the oldest building in Amsterdam. It's the oldest church in Amsterdam. Uh, it also has uh, Protestant roots, and it's a Protestant congregation. It became a Protestant congregation. 
It also was a site where uh, the Radical Reformation, the moving from the Protestant Reformation into more of the, what we call the Baptist stream of thought and, and all of that that ultimately came out of Amsterdam and came to the New World, a lot of that was connected to the old church as well. But the most striking thing about it is its current location. The old church is in the heart, the center of, the famous red light district in Amsterdam. And when I say in the center of, I mean that across a cobblestone street, which couldn't have been more than 30 or 40 feet across, from the old church on both sides are brothels. Uh, the brothels, as you've heard them described, um, they're like uh, plate glass windows with women sitting in the windows and, of course, red neon lights around the windows or red lights above the doors indicating that these are brothels or houses of prostitution. And they're all around the old church, including on both sides of the church on the cobblestone streets facing the church itself. And then next to one of those brothels, uh, a guide pointed out to us that uh, the building next to one did not have red lights around it, so it was obviously a different kind of business. It was a child care center. It was the daycare for women who work in the brothels. And the guide simply said, everybody has to go to work. Everyone's children have to be cared for. Well, that juxtaposition of the old church and the brothels and the red light district surrounding it had a very uh, significant impact on me. And I'm going to get to, in just a moment, uh, kind of the conclusions I drew from that as I bring all this together. So, three or two trips this summer, first to India to share the gospel, to train pastors, and to work with missionaries. To hear people say in India, who is Jesus, or to reply to a statement about Jesus, I've never heard of him. Then to Europe to go to the heart of the Protestant Reformation, Geneva and Zurich, to tour and see the impact that that movement made and has continued to make these past 500 years. And then the little side trip to Amsterdam, uh, not only to tour uh, Anne Frank's museum and to see what a little girl did in the face of raw evil, but then across town to go to the old church and see uh, a church that now is a museum piece that sits in the context of debauchery and brokenness and really uh, some of the worst kind of evil as people are trafficked, sold, and bought for the pleasures of other human beings. It's really a despicable place. So let me pull it all together now. My summer travels, what did I learn? Well, the first thing I learned is that the gospel is powerful. It was the gospel that fueled the Reformation movement. But the gospel is still powerful. When we were in India and we were having these conversations with people who had never heard the name of Jesus, some of them engaged with us in a very serious way, and about 60 of them, we have good numbers, it's around 59 or 60, about 60 of them prayed with us to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, because we were using Indian believers as translators, uh, they were able to help us be very careful that we were able to clearly articulate the gospel, that we were not asking these Hindu followers, Hindus to add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. We were asking them to follow Jesus and follow him alone. And so about 60 people this summer were willing to do that. And our team was instrumental in sharing the gospel with people and seeing the gospel transform their lives. But then beyond that, when we went out to serve, to work with the churches and to worship in the churches, we saw vibrant believers worshiping, loving, 
worshiping the Lord, loving each other, and making a difference in their communities. I was able to worship with about 35 or 40 believers in a church that meets in a house in a city called Punta. Uh, we were, I was uh, mesmerized by the worship. It was energetic. It was thoughtful. It was biblical. Uh, then the preaching, uh, there were two messages. I was able to deliver one message. Another preacher was able to deliver another one. And these messages were rooted in Scripture, uh, communicated aspects of the gospel and of the importance of living the Christian life, and challenged people uh, to uh, take the gospel, to live the gospel, and to, uh, to spread the gospel. It was, it was a powerful experience of worship. Uh, and so I saw in that moment the transformative power of people coming to faith in Jesus and then the church coming together to worship him and being a part of a movement of churches across northern India. There's uh, about 1,300 of these kind of churches that have been identified that are affiliated with the networks that Southern Baptists are supporting in that region. And to see the, the leaders of those churches come together for the training conference I led and then to know that the church I experienced on Sunday is just an example of what's going on all over northern India. It was so encouraging to see the power of the gospel. Uh, the second thing I learned this summer is the uh, power and the influence a church can have. And I saw the juxtaposition of it. Uh, I saw the power of the church in India. No buildings, very little resources, but they have the gospel. And they have the transformative gospel that's made them into different people. And that gospel has brought them together as, ch as churches and they are banded together to take care of each other, to meet each other's needs, and to make a difference in their communities by serving others and sharing the name of Jesus and spreading the gospel at every opportunity. The church is alive in that context, and it reminded me of how important and powerful the church can be to transform a culture. And I saw that in contrast to what I experienced in Amsterdam. There I saw the church dead. I saw a building that once housed a vibrant congregation of people, but over the years, that influence waned, and around that church grew up uh, this red light district, a place of human trafficking, of human suffering. And please don't tell me that legalized prostitution eliminates all that. You're naive if you think that. Just walking through that community and seeing the brokenness, the sadness, seeing how women are being used, and not just women, but some of the houses of prostitution have men in them working as prostitutes as well, and seeing how they're being used and abused. It, it, it's heartbreaking. And then, uh, and then to think about the children that have been produced by those unions and those, those children growing up and being put in childcare during the day so their parents can continue to work as sex workers. Uh, to see all of that taking place is one thing, but to see it taking place literally across the street from the oldest church building in Amsterdam, now a museum, just a dead relic, reminded me of what can happen to the church if we lose our vibrancy. When the church loses its grip on the gospel, when the church loses its vibrancy of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, when the church loses its mission of sharing the gospel with others and of serving each other in the name of Jesus and of making a difference in our communities, when the church loses that vibrancy, it may be left with a multi-million dollar facility that it's preserved for centuries. It may have a beautiful museum that speaks of past life and past influence. It may be connected in significant ways to historical movements of what's happened in the church in the past, but it's dead today. And you contrast that with what I saw in India. Vibrant life of the gospel 
and of people who believe the gospel and who live the gospel and who in the context even of persecution have decided to stand together and serve their communities and make a difference in Jesus' name. That is the church, and that's the church that it's worth living and dying for today as a, as, a, as a Christian leader. And so while I was impressed by the historicity of what I saw in Amsterdam, and I certainly was impressed by the historical nature of the Reformation churches I saw in, in uh, uh, Zurich and Geneva, uh, despite all of that, all of the trappings, all the power, all the history, I would take those people I worshipped with in India every time as the truest representation of the church in the 21st century. It's people banded together around the gospel, worshipping, serving, loving. That's the church, and that's what's making a difference in our world. And so while I value the history of what's been accomplished, I'd rather look forward to the future of what can be done through vibrant people coming together in the name of Jesus. Look, I saw the power of the gospel this summer, and I saw... The, the, the power of the church and the nature of the church when it's, when it's truly functioning, and I want to be a part of that movement. And then I saw one more thing. I saw it in Amsterdam in Anne Frank's museum, and I also saw it in India, and that is I saw the church when it stands up and Christians when they stand up in the face of raw evil and what it can cost them. In the case of Anne Frank and her family, I... Um, I, I, I saw the, the Christians in Amsterdam helping care for them. I saw people doing what was right in the face of Nazism and about all that and, and all that entailed. And of course, it cost uh, Anne and her sister and the rest of the people that were captured in her home that day, all except her father. It cost all of them their lives as they were on the last train that was shipped out to a concentration camp from Amsterdam. She died there, and her writings live on as a testament to hope and faith and belief in God. And, it, and her, her life and the preservation of her life stands as a testament to Christian people and others who stood with her and helped care for their family for the two years they were in hiding. So I saw what it's like to stand up to raw evil in that context, and then I saw the same thing in India. Um, in India... There is a rising persecution of the church. Uh, the current prime minister is promoting something that is uh, called Hindu nationalism, and he's equating being Hindu with being Indian, and now there's actually a law that's been passed that makes it illegal to convert from one religion to another. That's not stopping the church from sharing the gospel, by the way, but it is raising the stakes for those who decide to convert to Christianity. And I saw people there being willing to put their lives on the line in serving the gospel and being willing to, to sacrifice uh, so much in order to advance God's kingdom. And it reminded me again that the gospel and its, uh, motivates us to form churches which then enable us to strengthen each other that we might stand up in the face of evil and stand up in the face of raw evil, of, of despicable evil as it stands against us. And so this summer I had some enjoyable trips. Uh, enjoyed the trip to India, enjoyed the trip to Europe, but I was surprised at how God used these trips to interweave the experiences from both locations into a kind of a mosaic of understanding for me and really impacted me on a personal basis. I want to just leave you with this. The gospel uh, is powerful. It really does change lives. It launched a movement called the Reformation, and it's causing hundreds if not thousands of people to come to Christ today in India. The gospel is powerful, and the church is transformational. Uh, I saw the power of the gospel demonstrated through the church in India. I saw the record of the power of the gospel demonstrated through the church in Europe. And while I appreciate the one, I long to be a part of the other. And then finally, I saw the power 
of the gospel and of it being lived out and what it can mean as we stand up to evil in our world. I saw the vibrancy of that in a woman, a little girl named Anne Frank. I saw the faithfulness of that in the people who cared for her family and helped them while they were in hiding. I, I saw the drama of it in India as people are standing up to a governmental opposition to their advancing of the Christian faith. I saw all of that, and I saw it in contrast to the old church in Amsterdam, which stands there but powerless, impotent, to make a difference in the community around it. I don't want to be that kind of church. But we can be the vibrant kind of church that I, that I saw this summer, and that's the kind of place I want to serve and live. The church, the gospel is powerful. The church is transformative, and we can stand up to evil, and we can make a difference in our world but if we're willing to pay the price to do that. Well, I hope you enjoyed this travelogue, but more than that, I hope you're encouraged and inspired by how God spoke to me this summer, and I hope he's working in your life just as powerfully to remind you of these great truths that the gospel is powerful, the church is transformative, and we can stand up to evil and make a difference in our world. Hey, we can do it as we lead on.